Yeah. David, you recorded that. Some fancy some fancy music there, Seth. We recorded that. Yeah, we did. Fun stuff. You're a professional drummer. Sometimes. Sometimes. What else do you do? Librarian. What's that like? It's great. I get to work with the public. Um, I get to learn about different types of media, what people might be interested in. Hmm. I do a lot of nonfiction uh, purchasing for the library I work for. It's a public library. So to learn a cursory amount of knowledge about a lot of topics. Very cool. Yeah. And then that new media, is, is there a new media that's coming out every every year, every day, as far as technology goes? Uh, well, there's new media all the time, yeah. Um, and books are no longer, as everybody knows, you know, just this uh, monogram, physical items. They're also digital and audio and... Mm-hmm. They're more conceptual than actual physical items now, which is a cool, cool thing. I've been getting into audiobooks personally. And I don't know why I was so resistant. I think I'm always resistant to new technologies and new media formats. And then eventually I'll come around to it. I think that's smart. I mean, I, I think blindly accepting anything is not a great idea, right? Mm. So spending some time looking at it from a distance might be smart. Yeah. Yeah. And then lately when I've been doing long driving trips on the road. Can't read. Yeah, you can't read. So audiobooks are perfect. And long format discussions, I also really enjoy. And you're a musician too, so audio resonates probably with you in a way that maybe text doesn't. Yeah. and Well, I would think that would be true for anybody, regardless of if they play music or not. Just the, the physical and the physiological resonance of taking something in through your eyes silently versus taking it in through your ears. Yeah, but I, I, I you know, in my, in my, in my library gig, um, I work with people who tell me they have trouble with audiobooks, but they can read all day hmm. without losing focus. But they don't have the attention span auditorily that they do visually. Interesting. Yeah, so I think different people have different learning styles, different strengths. I think yeah, that's interesting. For me, it really depends on the book. I've been listening to a lot of nonfiction. And sometimes it can get really dry and, or not dry, but um, hyper detailed with history and dates and all this stuff. And uh, I can only take in so much of that at once. What have you been listening to? Well, there's one book called The uh, the Invisible Rainbow by Arthur Furstenberg, which is fascinating. It, I think the subtitle is A History of Electricity and Life. Very cool. And The Visible Rainbow is Roy G. Biv, right? All the colors that we can see. And that's on the electromagnetic spectrum. The invisible rainbow is the rest of the electromagnetic spectrum, what we can't see. So what are you reading lately? Well, um, you know, beyond a thousand and a half uh, book reviews for my job. Uh, and, you know, I read, I read stuff for work too, because I run book clubs for the library. And I get a lot out of that because I often read things I wouldn't pick on my own. Uh, but beyond that... Um, on my own time, I'm I'm mostly reviewing my BOTA materials, uh, Builders of the Aditum. It's a, a hermetic uh, school of the mysteries. Uh, I'm off brand with how I presented that exactly, but um, Paul Foster Case and Ann Davies were uh, teachers of the mysteries, and it's the order they founded, and they. They wrote books that are available to the public, but you know, pretty much anybody can become a member, and they all then you also get correspondence lessons in the mail. 
So I've been spending a lot of time going back and reviewing that stuff as well as, yeah, the associated books and uh, classic alchemical texts, uh, the Book of Lambspring, which uh, I love and get something different out of every time I review it. And actually it's in this uh, anthology called uh, the Museum Hermeticum. I have the Latin edition here. I don't read Latin really, but I wanted to see what the original Latin edition looked like. So I borrowed it with all the illustrations. Um, But yeah, it's in there. So I just read that again. When was that published or written? The Book of Lambspring, I believe was written in the 1640s. Um, and the authorship is questionable. There's a, jeez, oh, what's his name? I can't remember who, is, who it's accredited to, uh, but you can find it easily. That's something that, you know, there's many uh, online archives and uh, it has the public domain book, so you can find it anywhere. And it's worth seeing it with the illustrations. And then I've been spending a lot of time uh, meditating on the uh, Emerald Tablet of Hermes Trismegistus. That's uh, uh, the maybe cornerstone work of Hermetic philosophy. It's 13 sentences long. And if you you can spend a lifetime unpacking those 13 sentences. I think a lot of mystical writers of the 20th century uh, made it one of the foundational texts of their work, along with maybe the Sefer Yetzirah, which is the Hebrew Kabbalistic book of correspondences. Uh, people, people who have uh, may have heard of other Kabbalistic books like the Zohar, which is you know multitudes of volumes, and it's like the Talmud of Kabbalah. This is more mystical, and maybe even like a, it's it's reading it is almost like a work of magic. Uh, you're familiar with the Sefer Yetzirah, Seth, a little bit. I know of it in context, but I haven't read much of it. So Seth and I have studied tarot a little bit together, and we've used one of Paul Case's books, uh, The Tarot. Uh, a key to the wisdom of the ages. A key to the wisdom of the ages. And in it, he references the Sefer Yetzirah, and he gives uh, his correspondences of the tarot to all of the other aspects of astrology and alchemy, etc., uh, which, which hermetic philosophy, right? That's the, what a lot of it is about is I'm going to quote directly and so I don't misquote from the, uh, Emerald tablet. It's often paraphrased, but I want to get, again, it's a translation. So who knows what, and there's multiple versions, but right. this is the, uh, the Vulgate version, if you will. Uh, that which is above is as that which is below and that which is below is as that which is above for the performance of the miracles of the one thing. Mm. I think there's another version that says something akin to that which is above comes from that which is below and that which is below below comes from that which is above, which is a slightly different meaning, but yet similar, right? Mm-hmm. But so the idea is the underlying philosophy. I think in my personal unprofessional and non-expert opinion is that the laws and, and, systems and relationships of things on the greatest, most cosmic scale are also true on the microscopic and personal scale. Well, we see that with, you know, you see a picture of a galaxy and you can compare that to a picture of 
of an atom or a cell. Right. Or you look at a tree in the root structure, you compare that to the capillaries of your lungs. You find the golden mean in most of everything in nature from you know the cellular level up to the cosmic level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And most people just reduce the line that you just said as, as above, so below. Correct. That's the common understanding of it. And multiple spiritual traditions have adopted it as a foundational starting point for their philosophy, right? Mm, yeah. I mean, that brings to mind to me just the nature of the universe. And when I think about that, I think about God, which a lot of people have a problem with the word God. I know I did for most of my life. I'm in my 30s, but for most of my the 20, first 20 years of my life, I was a staunch atheist because I saw what the Catholic Church was doing and rejected it. I, I noticed some of the violence that they perpetrated throughout the world and some of the mind control they employed through the church. And, and my whole life was just rejecting that, that energy. But it wasn't until later when I discovered other texts, other spiritual traditions that really taught the nature of God as, as the universe, what are, what's bigger than us, what we come from. So I think people who say that they don't believe in God maybe haven't defined God for themselves because most people, I'll speak for myself, I used to define God as just the Christian God or the Catholic God or a man with a beard in the sky. And that to me seemed ridiculous. So I said, I don't believe in that. But as soon as I started defining God as the universe, it all made sense. And I could read a a religious text without feeling weird about it, without rejecting it. So I guess I say that to say, as above, so below, we come from that which is greater than us. You know, call God the universe, the great mystery, nature. People have other terms for it. How do you look at God? I mean, this is a huge question, but talk to me about how you define that for yourself. Well, I, I agree. I've had a similar journey with the word God. So as somebody who's spent a lot of time dealing with the mysteries, quote unquote, uh, we're dealing a lot with symbols and words are, are symbols. Mm-hmm. Um, and our modern language is built on, you know, centuries, millennia of culture. And our, our conception of, of God is very loaded and it, it's, it's richly encultured, but it's also highly layered and, and symbolic. And, and you, talk, you spoke a little bit about your own Christian upbringing and the culture that we live in, you know, 21st century Americans and what God is in this time and place. You could spend multiple lifetimes doing academic research to unpack how we got to that. Mm-hmm. And you still wouldn't have any understanding of what God is or is not. I think it's important to acknowledge that, you know, we're, we're, I'm speaking English to you. You know, a lot of the, the sources for my uh, spiritual guidance were not written in English. And so our understanding of those texts is, is, is loaded. I think when we're talking about God, we're talking about consciousness. And when we're talking about consciousness, we're talking about beingness. And there's a direct correlation between those two things that, uh, our language doesn't necessarily do a great job of expressing. So if, if, if there's a finite amount to what is, that all in, its, in, in, in completeness is God. If there's a finite 
if there's if there's that which is not, it is also God. And that's a lot to wrap our heads around in the, in this Kabbalistic and, and Hermetic tradition. Um, we're we're told by the you know writers and teachers of that tradition that those are questions that we can ask, but we'll never get answers to. And sometimes the nature of just the questioning, the probing of asking repeatedly brings some sort of illumination or understanding or closer to the truth. Yes. And I think, again, this is a tradition that I'm dealing with that is highly intellectual and empirical, but maybe those kind of questions if you ask them, you can, you can experience, you can have experiential answers as opposed to intellectual answers. I think that's true of a lot of things in life that maybe are a little bit easier for us to grasp than God, like love, right? Everybody, I could say the word love. Everybody can think of a lot of different things in their life that equate to love. You know, you can, you can love your spouse or your children or significant other but you can also love, like I love Miles Davis. Yeah, me too. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like I can have a terrible day, and I can come here and put on a Miles Davis record, and it it lifts me, and I I have this level of love and gratitude for that. That's really deep, and I think that's just a concept of something we we have direct experience with, and we act. It's an action verb. We love, um, but so to try to. Explain, explain beingness and vibe and consciousness and God, right? That's so beyond what we can intellectually grasp. Maybe it is something we can only experience. I like that because as soon as you said consciousness and beingness, I thought, well, that's an that's an active form of experience. It's not just looking at the universe and saying, oh, everything that everything that there is, which is kind of removed, but consciousness and beingness and love is an action that you employ, that you feel, that you participate in. So I like your conception of God because it it has a personal connection to action and to experience and life. You know, it's alive. It's alive. Yeah. And it 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 is it is the liver. It is the the experiencer, you know? If you think of it in terms of like a lot of, so the most recent thing I read, I read, I'm very, again, I have a cursatory knowledge of a lot of nonfiction topics just because of my profession, but there's a lot of research currently that's equating vibration to matter and how that they're actually one and the same. Another aspect of this tradition, as well as mystical traditions from the Middle East and Far East uh, specifically, you know, any tradition that involves the idea of chanting, right? So the idea is vibration is manifestation. You're, you're, you're getting closer to God by chanting the name of God in a lot of situations or some aspects of God. It's a form of meditation, maybe. It's a form of uh, channeling. Uh, but the idea that maybe there's a first vibration and then every other vibration is a response to that. I like a lot. Yeah. Well, when I meditate on cause and effect, I think about the entire chain from an impulse in my mind to say something and then the act of saying it, you know, the vocalization and then the reception of other people 
you know, that vibration hits their eardrum, hits their brain. It turns into, you know, neural signals, hits their brain, gives them a thought. They respond. It's this back and forth of vibration, but it's not just the vibration of the air molecules. It actually starts as an impulse in your mind, in your brain, um, which is a vibration too. I think I think where a lot of people get uncomfortable around these type of ideas is the idea that if if it is vibration, if there's a relationship there between being this consciousness, God, and vibration, that means that we have some active role in God. And that scares a lot of people on both sides of the you know what am i looking for here Seth? like the dichotomy of yeah people who follow they're 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 extremists either they're they're they're, free will or fate type of thing or or even people who are like you know i'm a christian or i'm i'm a jew i'm a muslim and this is the book i follow and these are the rules i follow and there's a god who tells me what to do or atheists who are saying there's no god they don't like the idea that oh well maybe you're part of god and maybe mm-hmm. you have some input from a willful perspective. Maybe you don't understand your will. Maybe that's the problem. But maybe from a willful perspective, you have some input into creation in perpetuity. Well, we're definitely co-creators of our universe. I mean, it's it's pretty easy to demonstrate cause and effect. And right? in 2021, you and I can say that, and it's not controversial for most people. Well, I shouldn't say that. If we lived in Afghanistan, that might be a very controversial perspective. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But for most of history of uh, culture, that was not an acceptable idea from the religious authorities. And you could be killed for that. Wow. Because they're they're deterministic as far as, you know, God is in charge of everything. Yeah. And the idea that the idea that you are essentially rising, not, I mean, on a, so on a purely on a religious level, if you're equating your action to the action of God, right? That could be considered heresy, right? But then on a, a pract- practical and pragmatic level, you can't have people determining their own life. You need people to fall in line. You know, you, you look at uh, medieval Europe, you had the three estates. You had the crown, the church, and the, the peasant working class. And where you were born was determined where you went, and you lived that life. You didn't have somebody saying like, yeah, you know, I, I'm kind of tired of being a nun. I think I'm going to go and be a farmer for a while. Or, yeah, I'm just going to travel around and, and play music for people. You, you, that's ridiculous. But for us in our world, that's totally acceptable to do that. We're lucky in a way to be born into that system that allows that. And that brings us to the next piece of this philosophy, right? Which is that even though it looks like the world is going to shit, which it Let's be honest, it pretty much is. In some ways, definitely. We are still evolving in perpetuity towards a refined version of that consciousness, Mm. collectively and individually. I like that. And that you still have free will, even if there's some things that are determined for you. I mean, the social structure, the the socioeconomic status you're born into, you know, your biology, like certain things you're given. Um but we still do have free will. You can still choose to do good or you can still choose to do harm and there are consequences to those actions. So to me, you know, when we analyze determinism versus free will, it's yes and, and both of those exist. But then that brings me to like, okay, if we have free will and if we can, if we're co-creators of the universe, do we have a responsibility then 
to act a certain way. Because I think some people look at free will, maybe the nihilists, and they'll say, well, I can do whatever I want. The world is mine. I can take advantage of other people and hurt them. And that's my choice. But I think we have a responsibility since cause and effect exists to not harm other people and other sentient beings. Um, I, I agree with what you're saying. And I think what you're talking about is, you know, the level of consciousness that somebody's dealing with, the level of refinement of that consciousness in their current incarnation and how they're identifying self. So when one talks about the self having free will, is it the, that, that truer self, that initial vibration, that, that God it was seated within the self? Or are you talking about some egoistic structure that's laid on top of that? And, and, and sure, that, that egoistic structure can take the lead in your current incarnation. You can make that choice. But at some point, you're going to return and you're going to return to the source and you're going to come back in a different incarnation, maybe maybe not consciously aware of it, but any pain you cause, you will get back in some way or another. Hmm. And now that sounds like some hippy dippy bullshit to a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. But it's just, it's, I mean, it's just science. Like there's a finite amount of material that we're working with. And energy. And, and energy. And, and yeah, currently you're, you're, you're put together as Seth and I'm put together as David, but that energy is going to return to the, and break down and be reformed and any any damage we cause while we're in this form we'll experience in the next and then again like i said it's how we identify right so you can identify purely individualistically you can identify familially culturally racially nationally uh just your species all mammals all animals all uh, living things, quote unquote, all all physicality, or you can you can choose to. I don't know if it's a choice, but you or you can identify with being, and it's that's what we're striving for. It's, that's a more of a universal um, identity. Yeah. So, like that, if you can if you can get to that place, you know, you've achieved what we're after here. How do you get to that place? Well. I'm certainly not there, uh, not all the time. And the fleeting moments in my life, I can think of a handful where I've, I've felt like that. There are mystics of every tradition who talk about it. Um, the idea of, you know, I thinking of Pentanjali's Yoga Sutras, where he talks about the highest level of meditation is the union of the union of the meditator with the object of the meditation. You're, you're meditating on God, and you un, and, and through that meditation, you experience God in a direct way of beingness. There's that word again, right? Is that is that unity consciousness basically thinking of everything as one? We're all from the same source. We're all consciousness. We're all vibration. I think that's something that that we can break it down a lot of different ways linguistically, but I think it really does need to be experienced directly. Mm. Now, what's a saint or a master or an adept is somebody who can maintain that and live in a body, right? Or in some traditions, the masters are, are no longer incarnate, yet they still maintain an individual consciousness. You could look at it a lot of different ways. But the idea, the idea is that you want to be able to have this egoistic 
body self maybe, but also being in touch with the idea that, oh, I'm just a piece of this much smaller thing. And not just intellectually, but experientially. Mm-hmm. It's yes and again, where yes, we are individual units of of bodies and you have a unique personality and we're all we're all cut from the same consciousness um and there is a unity so we don't need to we don't need to have we don't have to pick between one or the other that's right now like i said a lot of mystical traditions and teachers deal with this and they have different paths and techniques to get to that um, some people scoff at the idea that, well, if that's the truth, why do I need to put in work? I should just be able to do it. And that's true. Like I, I equate it to music or art, right? Like you can, by force of will, teach yourself to play music without any kind of training or guidance. You can, you know, I have my vibraphone over there. It's something I've returned to after 20 years away from that instrument. And if I wanted to, I could not study out of any books and not take any lessons and just by force of will try to figure out where all the notes are and all the music I want to play. And I might accomplish something, but why would I not take advantage of all the work those who've come before me have laid out there? Yeah. I mean, and that, and that begs the question too, once you achieve a certain mastery over an instrument, for example, do you then have a responsibility to share that with younger um, aspirants? And do you have a responsibility to the world to then become a teacher of that art? Maybe that's part of the path, right? Maybe you can't, maybe you get to a point with it where where your next step is sharing what you know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. It's just, just positing it. Yeah. It's not really yet. Yeah. Well, so just to go back to the the way to achieve this unity consciousness, you said it's something that has to be experienced. What can someone do to just start on that path? Like I, I, I bet meditation is part of that. It, sharpening your will, sharpening your discipline. Like what are some steps people can take? Yeah. I mean, I can only speak to my own experience. So, you know, I have no, um, and uh, Seth, as you know, most of my experience talking about this kind of stuff in a public forum is empirical, is based on dealing with symbols in a kind of an intellectual way. Right. So if I was, uh, I've, I've experimented and, practice regularly meditation practices from a few different traditions. And I I think there's such a glut of information at this point in history. It's a unique moment in time where you can learn about like the most obscure moment in history, these group of people who did this thing this way, whatever topic you want to, you're interested in studying. So I think it would be ill-advised for me to try to tell people this is a way to do it. Because there's just such a, you know, they, you can, you can, you can Google meditation techniques right now and find 30 things. I would say read Pentanjali's Yoga Sutra. Just read it. Don't, don't read the commentary, whatever translation you get right away. You can come back to that later. Meditate on that. Mentate on that. Read that book, which is basically a guide to meditation in the broadest sense. And let that sink in. That would be my first piece of advice. Um, reading is a big part of this. Mm. And, and, and and there's so many traditions out there. Again, so for me, the builders of the Aditum has been a huge boon to my spiritual development because that particular organization 
is like a modernization of the Western mystery tradition, which is the tradition that I find resonates most with my personality. That doesn't mean it's right for everybody. And the Western mystery traditions include tarot, Kabbalah, what else? Yeah, so it, it's the symbolism of the Western world uh, interpreted esoterically and then tools for, for working with that in a spiritual, quote unquote, or meditative way. Um, it draws. It also draws heavily on yoga and some on Buddhism. Um, the symbology and the way the Western philosophical tradition has developed the way our minds work in the modern world, that stuff resonates a lot more with me. And I think with a lot of people for that reason. Um, that being said, yes, tarot, Kabbalah. Which are both intrinsically intertwined with Hebrew. The Hebrew language, uh, which is, well, we'll get into that in a second. Uh, so tarot, Kabbalah, the astrology of the West, which is distinct from Chinese or Indian astrology, but so close to Indian astrology, it's it's amazing how similar the two are. Um, and alchemy, those are the four, ceremonial magic would be the other one. Uh, and they all intersect with each other, overlap with each other. Again, the idea, and I think you see this in a lot of the medieval writers, is that if everything above and everything below is connected and unified, then there should be correspondence and resonance across all these things. So the idea in, you know, exoteric alchemy was we're going to turn lead into gold. And so anybody who studied the mysteries, there's a lot of meaning in both the words lead and gold. You can manipulate matter if you can manipulate the self, if you can manipulate consciousness of yourself. So there's not a lot of distinction made between the physical world and the, I shouldn't say that, there is distinction, but there's not, the idea is what I can change intellectually, I can change physically. Now, uh, the 20th century mystics have taken the idea that the alchemical operation happens within the self. Some groups, some teachers believe that's only a intellectual or spiritual concept. But some teachers believe it's actually a physiological change within the body. And I tend to think that that's probably more true. So exoteric alchemy, as far as turning lead into gold, is not just a metaphor. It's actually, it has meaning as far as you can change your physical reality. Yeah. And I think a lot of the times we think about that and we're like, well, why didn't they just say that? Well, because we're dealing with medieval thinkers who that wasn't not only was that not an acceptable idea in their time, but I don't think they had language to express it. Hmm. So the metaphor, how do I, how do I say this? It wasn't even necessarily like a metaphor. It was just how their language, how they interpreted yes. the, the mental, spiritual, physiological changes. They just expressed in words that today we understand as very crude, physical, you know, you can't turn lead into gold or, water into wine. Uh, so we think of that as like a metaphor, but what are words other than metaphors? Symbols. Right. It's all symbols. Yeah. Can you, can you speak a little more on alchemy? Cause it's really interesting. I think a lot of people reject the concept of alchemy because 
they think of it as woo woo or impossible or not based in modern science. What is the spiritual side of alchemy? Yeah. So hermeticism is often equated with the spiritual side of alchemy. And the idea is we're going to create the philosopher's stone or the, uh, the serum of life. And, and what we're, it's, it, I mean, I'm not an expert, but we put that out there again. Uh, this is my own, from my own reading and my own understanding. And I don't read Latin and I, I read a little Hebrew and I read almost no Greek. So take from that what you will. But my understanding of it is through, through the process of consciousness awakening, one is perfecting the self. Not that different from Pantanjali's Yoga Sutras. Um, the difference is the alchemical language is highly symbolic. Whereas while Pantanjali does use some metaphor, it's much more direct. Why does that matter? And why would you spend all this time learning this symbolic, highly symbolic language when you could just meditate? Well, because when you learn that highly symbolic language, it has resonance in the world around us and within the self, and it enriches being in a body. What does that mean? When I, after studying, for example, uh, not exactly alchemy, but very closely related to alchemy, after studying the tarot for years, my reading of fiction works, my interactions with people, my experience of the seasons and the moon cycles is much richer. I take a lot, much more meaning from that than from than what I had previously. Uh, symbols are everywhere, and we see things as symbols sometimes, even if they're not quote unquote designed or intended, they're still there. You can have very intense spiritual experiences with things that are otherwise mundane if you have that subtle awareness. And we train ourselves to see that stuff. Now, does that mean that they're absolutely 100% empirically intended that way? Not necessarily, but does that matter? No, you're enriching your life. You're enriching yourself. You're making your own experience on this plane better. And you being a happier, better person, more aware person makes the world a better place because you're going to make choices that make it better for everybody else and yourself. Yeah. And I think these symbols in these traditions help us see natural forces in the world. For example, in tarot, there are certain keys or cards, as they're otherwise known, that represent the, the subconsciousness, for example. And so thinking more about the subconsciousness through an image and what all the details in the image represent helps you just understand what's going on in your own mind and body and spirit. And the same is true for the superconsciousness, you know, God or the universe or consciousness in general in the largest zoomed out sense helps me just understand the the forces that we're dealing with, the forces that were given to us, and the forces that we can refine and um, and help evolve to a higher state, or maybe just um, help us see them clearly, or feel feel them more clear. Yeah, it's it's like you're 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 imposing a very human understanding of the universe onto being in consciousness, and like if we we talk about the super consciousness, there's no scientific definition of that or we talk about um astrology as opposed to astronomy we're not 
necessarily saying that this is like a uh, objective measurable thing, but it is a part of human experience that we see the world this way. That's a fact. That is a fact. And there's a rich tradition of humans experiencing the world this way and getting a deeper understanding and knowledge of that makes us more in touch with what those symbols are talking about. All we have to work with is symbols. That's our human. I mean, this is very, a very Jungian perspective, but that's all we have to work with. I see the big red book over there in, in the corner. Yeah, yeah, it's when I, I love that. Yeah. Can, can we go back a sec to hermeticism? Sure. Because I think people hear the word Hermes, they have some sort of contextual understanding of who Hermes was. Um, but we're talking about Hermes Trismegistus. Yeah, you could, a lot of different pronunciations. How do you way. say that? I say Trismegistus, but there's, you could say, that I think there's, yeah, there's some flexibility there. So who is Hermes Trismegistus? What is his cultural context and um and what is hermeticism so alexandria egypt uh the alexandrian era of of greece and egypt when you know the cultures were colliding hermes was syncretized to thoth and uh the great mystic writers of that era attributed a lot of their writings to him it doesn't mean that they were saying that they thought they were you know, channeling works from him, literally, necessarily. It was the tradition at that time. You you attributed your great works to the masters of wisdom. And you realize that on some level, they were channeling that wisdom. So there's lots of people who think like, oh, like Hermes physically actually came down. And maybe he did, but it's, it's, that's probably not the case. But uh, so there's a, a collection of works called the Hermetic Corpus, which is highly allegorical and it deals with a lot of these concepts that we're talking about in a very, um, well, antiquated way, highly symbolic. The most famous work from the Hermetic Corpus would be the Emerald Tablet, which I think we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. And that tradition uh, moved into Europe in the Ottoman era and it has very close relationships, relationships rather, uh, with uh, Neoplatonism and with uh, Iberian version of Kabbalah. All these ideas were kind of coexisting at the same time because the world was collecting and moving together. And the real mystics, and they are, and I say the real mystics because the real mystics aren't always the people wearing robes and preaching on the corner. They could just be somebody who's paying attention saw that there was something resonant and similar there. This set of symbols that evolved out of Hermeticism and the Kabbalah and later Rosicrucianism are with us to this day. And they're, they're, I mean, they're everywhere. And philosophically, we've already kind of touched on a lot of the ideas that Hermeticism is dealing with. Uh, what was unique about it was it dealt in Egyptian-Grecian symbols specifically, Western symbols. So a combination of Egyptian and Greek symbols superimposed onto each other and explicitly dealing with the changes within the world. What are some examples of those Egyptian-Grecian symbols you're talking about? Uh, so... Well, the, the, so Hermes himself, right? The idea that there's a, a personification of all of the the forces associated with with 
with Hermes and Thoth, the Egyptian equivalent of him, um, that's a rich symbol, right? Like we all have it uh, in our minds. Like I say, Hermes was the first thing you think of, Seth, in terms of a visual symbol. Um, the messenger god, yeah, with wings on his shoes, exactly. And he had the he had the uh, caduceus, hmm. right? So it's and like, I mean, we can unpack any. We can spend the next hour unpacking any one of these symbols, right? Well, another one is um, hermetically sealed. People, I think, use that term and maybe not understand where it comes from. It comes from the word Hermes. It comes from Hermes. That symbolism elicits a lot, right? And uh, you can start to see just in, just by talking about the concept of Hermes. Never we, we haven't even like presented a specific image of Hermes, right? But just by talking about the concept of Hermes, we can communicate a lot more than we can with a few words with these higher concepts, right? Hmm. So let's go back to what you're saying about Hermes having wings on his feet, right? Well, the Egyptian god Thoth looks like an ibis, a bird. So what's the link between those two things? Like the wings. The wings, the idea of flying through the air, of, of ideas traveling from above to below. And he was the messenger god, right? Exactly. So he brought ideas from the gods to humans or vice versa or from human to human. For, or, or yeah, but the, and then the idea that he travels above to below and it's a direct, con, he's the, he is the conduit between the two. Mm. Now in the tarot, Hermes is associated with key one, the magician, which is also attributed to our personal self-conscious, right? Mm. So there's Hermes in everybody. Well, the idea is that it, to the ego self, the self-conscious, the, the the self that we talk about when we say, hi, I'm David Moore. That is the tool. That is the, but yet it's a personality. It's personified as Hermes that connects the super consciousness to the physical plane. Hmm. That's it, an empowering idea. Yeah. Yeah. We need, it's almost like we need a, an image of a messenger between different planes of existence. And that's, he's that symbol. Astrologically, what is Hermes? Who does he correspond to in the cosmos? So he, he corresponds to Mercury, which, you know, he was the, the other syncretization between the Greeks and the Romans, right? Was uh, Hermes, the Greek Hermes to the Roman Mercury. And there's some slight differences in the mythology around all three of these gods. I'm not saying that they're all exactly the same or saying that we should throw out the cultural distinctions between the Egyptians, the Romans, and the Greeks. Certainly not. But they all did ultimately coexist. And in our modern world, we have all three of them. And you could syncretize that with other deities from other cultures as well. I know there's people working with uh, Yoruba god forms and placing them. So now getting back to the Kabbalah, we have the tool, the great tool of the tree of life, where we can place all of these symbols on, whether they come from alchemy, uh, tarot, Kabbalah, and we can place all of them onto this single glyph and and explain to ourselves how they interact. And then that allows us to have a working model of the metaphysical reality of, of being and non-being. Yeah. I've, I've been lucky to study with you and a few other people over the past year, the tree of life and the Kabbalistic energies that we superimpose over that glyph. Like you mentioned, it's really fascinating. I do know some people who are scared of Kabbalah as far as they think that the control system employs it to to further their mind control. Uh, well, we all employ it all the time in everything we do. I mean, mm. it's, it's a way of understanding being 
and 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 subdividing it. You know, well, it, yeah, it's a tool. You can use it for anything. You can use it for good, evil. It's a classification system for for consciousness, and it's com- it's difficult to explain because it you're dealing with consciousness. You're dealing with a tool to measure and understand consciousness, and by doing so, you're expanding your consciousness. So, if you're intent, I mean, you can you can go in and use it as for whatever purposes you want. Mm-hmm. I also tend to believe that if you're really studying Kabbalah you're not going to have malintent at some point. At some point, you're going to be, it's going to be impossible for you to continue with your work and still, you know, be able to take advantage of people. Well, because it connects you to the higher energies of the world and the lower energies of the world. I mean, it connects you to the whole, the whole thing, the whole image. And for me, the tree of life is a real perspective shifter. It's almost like a slider. If you go up in the tree, you're more universal. If you slide down and, and zoom in, to the physical plane, Malkut, you see things more uh, in a denser energy, a den- the the physical plane. And so for me, I just I like to use that tree of life as a as a slider to kind of go between perspectives, super big and super small. That's right. But like we're talking about in the beginning, as above, so below. They're all reflections of each other. They're almost not separate, yet they are. Right. Now, I, I wanted, before we had this talk, I was just trying to be conscious to not get too into the minutia of the studies, right? Because like, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, less scared of it from like a mind control or black magic kind of way, more just like, why spend all this time studying all this, mm. learning this information? And I think nobody can say that, that, that they, that's a great investment of your time. You know what I mean? Nobody can tell you that. But I know for me and probably for you, the idea that we are learning and I greatly, it grows exponentially every time I spend time with this stuff. And even now I feel like I'm studying it when I'm not studying it. The quality of life that comes with that is difficult to overstate. Mm. Um, it's enriching. That's why. And if, But that's not the correct path for everybody. I, I truly believe that too, right? I mean, there's lots of traditions. I think of the Zen tradition where it's really about sitting in a specific position, breathing a specific way and looking at a spot on the wall. That's really what it's about. And the, I've talked with Zen practitioners and they've told me like, this, we have tons of books, but th- you don't have to do those. You just stare at the wall, like this way that we do it. Now, f- that doesn't really work for me, but I respect that. You know? And you've tried it in your life too. You've sat with that and, and experienced their way of doing it. Yeah, I, I did it for, I, I was, there was a Zen center nearby here and I would, I had a, I used to live near it and I, I wiped out on my bicycle right in front of it once. And the, the woman who runs the center brought me in and cleaned me up. And then she invited me to come meditate with them. And I, I, I did for a while. And while I respect that tradition and I could see that it works for a lot of folks, it just wasn't my calling. Mm-hmm. How important do you think it is to try a bunch of different traditions or let's say someone finds one they click with early in their path? Um, how important is it for people to explore many traditions versus just finding one that works for them? I think it depends on your goals. Totally. And your personality. Everybody I know who has spent a lot of time in this in this specific Western mystery tradition that we're talking about, they've looked at other things to compare it to. Hmm. But I think there's plenty of people who find one thing and they just do that one thing. This Western tradition that we're talking about, it's already eclectic, right? 
So it's going to attract people who are interested in acquiring information and ideas, lots of places and syncretizing them or synthesizing them, right? That's what this is, is it's a tradition of synthesis, which is not unlike the Western philosophical or literary tradition, right? It's there. It's it's because it's from the same culture, which is very different than when I was studying with yogis, for example, from a tradition. It was more like you would do this step that we tell you to do. We read these books that we tell you to read. Don't read anything else right now, please. Do this thing. Do this practice meditation this way. Do yoga at this time. Why at this time? Because we said so. We'll tell you later. And like for some people, they need that. That works for them. Well, it's a great discipline builder. Right. Um, it might be too dogmatic for some. Yeah. I think I think it's part of our culture too, right? Like, I mean, no offense to that. I'm not saying the name of that tradition intentionally, but, you know, somebody telling me what kind of underwear to wear was where I was like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. You know, so, but for some people it's like, oh, I don't have to think about that anymore. Right. And maybe it's a ritual that incorporates some sort of vibratory you know, ritualistic energy in you, just like us and our symbols. Maybe them telling you what type of underwear to wear is is a symbolic ritual that you need to take part in to fully experience that energy that they're trying to impart. Yeah, I mean, I th- and I think that's pretty close to how they would explain it to you if you challenge them on it. Um, but, you know, the others, we haven't talked at all about the other big part of the tradition that we're dealing with, which is Rosicrucianism, which mm. is the most hotly debated aspect of the tradition because there are organizations that claim to be the true Rosicrucian order or, you know, the true bearers of that tradition. The reality of it is, 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 okay, so let's go back to the history of it a little bit. In, I believe the 1580s, I might be wrong on that. Somebody's going to listen to this and tell me that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> but uh, the two initial Rosicrucian documents appeared and in quick succession of each other. And at the time, all of the scholars and mystics of the time were trying to unpack these things and figure out where this order was, if they could become members. And, you know, it it, it was highly uh, Kabbalistic in its language and full of gematria, which led to, you know, people trying to figure out secondary meanings. What Paul Foster Case teaches is that the Rosicrucian order existed as a thing before it had a name. And the idea was that the true mystics of the world, the true, uh, those who have eyes to see, those who are connected to the source will find each other and recognize each other. That was his reading of it. And I, I like that. Um, there's a grade structure that all contemporary Rosicrucian orders have. There's a, it corresponds greatly to this tree of life that we're talking about. Uh, it's it's highly Kabbalistic in its organization, but it's also highly European in its organization. Um, there's lots of schools that draw from it and including the Freemasons. That being said, I th- I think the the the, the Rosicrucian famas and the fama and the confesso those are two initial documents are worth reading and having them not make sense to you and then also reading commentary by like Paul Case I like Paul Case a lot so his version of it called the true invisible Rosicrucian order where he unpacks that stuff in great detail and something I've revisited that book over and over again and still feel like there's a lot more for me to absorb there 
um, uh, I feel like that's a good use of one's time if you're interested in this stuff. I, I have a book on Rosicrucianism by Rudolf Steiner. It's a collection of his lectures. And it's so dense. Like I, I, the first time I picked it up, I couldn't understand it. I couldn't get through it. And it's just very dense. And maybe I need to go back and read those original texts to understand his commentary even more. And there's a third one that people uh, debate whether or not it's uh, should be considered in the same uh, stratosphere as those two called the chemical wedding of Christian Rosencruz. In the original two texts, they refer to Brother R.C. They never call him Christian Rosencruz, but in, in the third one, he is named thus. And it's more of a narrative and more of like a drama, for lack of a better term. Hmm. I mean, it's it's highly symbolic and there's not really a through line to the narrative, but it is a narrative and it's it's good reading. And, and whoever wrote it clearly knew this symbolism deeply, so... I was telling someone last night about the Georgia Guidestones, and there were these massive stones that were installed somewhere in Georgia with commandments on them, basically. And it was commissioned and built by presumably a pseudonym, but it was R.C. Christian. So it has, it's, it directly references Rosicrucianism. Oh, wow. And um, so it kind of implies, I think these were put up in the 80s, it implies that Rosicrucianism is still alive today. Whoever commissioned- Oh, it's very, very much alive, yeah. yeah. Yeah, whoever commissioned those massive stones to be put in is not an easy task. I mean, you can read about the construction of them. You can read about what they say. It's very interesting. Um, but there is some fact faction of, of Rosicrucianism today. I mean, I've, I've driven in New Orleans by the airport. There's a Rosicrucian society. Oh, yeah. And there's one, there's a, there's a, is it Amork- a permanent building in in Brighton, I think, Massachusetts, and I just learned about an a, a organization I hadn't heard of before that owns a mansion in the Canary Islands. I mean, there's lots of BOTA. The order that I belong to is is technically a Rosicrucian order, although um, it definitely downplays a lot of the hierarchical structure of that tradition. But the symbolism is a huge part of it. Um, you know, the goal, of course, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. I, we couldn't not mention that tradition is Rosicrucian and its organization. Hmm. So yeah, any of these orders, Rosicrucian ideas are alive within them, but they're also alive in the greater culture. And that's something that I find more interesting. You know, it's like the keepers of this knowledge, interpreters of this knowledge who are explicitly doing that are important, but it's almost more important that these ideas are just part of our way of living whether or not we know that or not whether or not we know that or not and that's that's where i think the real power of this stuff lies Hmm. in understanding it for yourself or just the fact that it's there permeating through everything both of those things so like understanding it in ourselves makes us more aware of how we're interacting with our world and our culture Hmm. and understanding our biases and our, our way of looking at the world better. Under, seeing that it's just un, accepting the fact that it permeates, you know, Western culture and thereby all of the world's culture because the Western culture has dominated the world. And even the most remote parts of the world have some influence from the English language or the West of, of some kind. Absolutely. Is, is really important. 
Mm-hmm. It's really important. And if we're studying consciousness, if we're studying being, it's important to understand how that has played out throughout our world, right? So this isn't only a study of consciousness, it's a study of history. Of, well, that would, you know, if consciousness is everything, then yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I think I think going back to these traditional texts, some of these mystery traditions is is really important because it's a it's something they don't teach you in history class. No, and it doesn't fit comfortably into modern or postmodern academics, right? Maybe it's starting to fit. Maybe some postmodern writers are more accepting of these ideas, mm-hmm. but I think it's not comfortable next to science and history in any, any university. I mean, again, people are starting to look at it more seriously in the academic circles, but yeah, it, it's existed outside of that. It's also existed outside of organized religion, right? Mm-hmm. Um. A lot of mystics are musicians and vice versa. In your circles as a professional musician, how many people are are into this stuff? Explicitly, not many. I think a lot of people have their own innate understanding of a lot of this stuff, who I work with as musicians. But I don't know many, present company excluded. I can think of one other person that we study with. Most of the musical contacts in my life aren't that interested in this stuff. Mm-hmm. What about you? Um, I'd have to say the same. But like you said, people have an, uh, an innate understanding or practice of some of these concepts and, and energies, yet they don't belong to an order. They're not reading books on tarot. They're not studying the images you know, in, in the tarot or in, in the traditions we mentioned, which is kind of in- interesting to me. I, I'd be curious to take a poll of some modern mystery tradition school and, and kind of break it down into profession and see who, you know, yeah. what percentage of them are musicians, what percentage of them are, are academics, what percentage of them, I mean, maybe that's just so reductive and like pointless, but. I also think that a lot, all of the mystery schools that I have come in contact with, the exoteric ones, you know, including the one that I'm involved with, they're all really different and they all attract very different types of people. Absolutely. Which is a good thing. That means that they're, they're they're reaching out to the right people for their particular stream of this stuff. Yeah, and studying consciousness is not excluded to musicians. Like it's no, it's, it's definitely not. It's not. It's it's a any human can study this stuff and has the innate energy and 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 uh, abilities to use these tools to um, ascend in consciousness, develop their spirit. And their, and their personal lives. Is music a spiritual practice for you? Well, the goal for me is to make every moment of life a spiritual practice, right? I know, f- so for, for me, music, something's not right if I haven't played music every day, right? I'm sure the same for you. Well, I define music so broadly that this conversation is music. Dig. But yes, I do love having a guitar in my hands. I lo- do love playing drums. I love playing the saxophone. I love singing, whistling, beatboxing. Like music just oozes out of my pores. But I define it so broadly that, you know, the blinker in my car is music. Like I'm jamming to that. I have a different experience with music than that. Talk to me about that. So for me, you know, studying all of this stuff is supplementary to life. It's not life. Right. Right. So having this kind of, like, it's my nature to be, analytical and intellectual. And so this tradition has been helpful for me to get in touch with the spiritual side of beingness, but it's also clarified for me, like 
where my priorities are. And a lot, one of those priorities besides constantly being a better person is having music to work at. I like consider music work. I don't mean work in like a, I put, I paid, played this gig, now pay me. That's part of it too. But it's, it's the idea that I'm consciously choosing to manifest energy and express it to the world through the sound vibration that we call music. And you cultivate that. Cultivate and refine it. Right. So you're not just showing up to the gig and playing and that's your musical experience. No, you're in the shed. The time in the shed is almost more important than the gig, right? So like whoever happens to be there for the gig receives the benefits of that time in the shed for better or for worse, depending on the, <laughs> the year and the moment. And But yeah, it's, it's the work of making music, the work of, all right, I've chosen to play the drums and I've worked hard at that. That's a relative term, of course, but... I put time into that and it's a, it's a labor of love and it gets deeper and better. But now I'm also exploring tonality in a more subtle way, practicing vibraphone mm. every day and getting deeper into that. And that, and that time is connection for sure with the source. Um, it's prayer, but it's also my life's work. You know, that's how I see it. This may be a generalization, but what makes drummers the best practicers? Because when I went to school for music, you could walk up on the top floor and where all the practice rooms are and hear a couple of people practicing their horn. But then you go to the basement where the drum rooms were and every room was full and loud and you could hear the metronome, you could hear them working on the rudiments, working on their skills. In my experience, drummers practice the most out of anybody. More than piano players? I think piano players win. Oh yeah? Yeah, piano players win. Well, piano is percussion. It's percussion. <laughs> and I, I, think, I think percussion instruments... And string instruments have an advantage over wind instruments where there's just less fatigue. Ah, so you can sit for hours and your your chops don't necessarily hurt unless you have bad technique. Unless you have bad technique, which you'll fix soon if you want to keep going, right? Right. Yeah, that's the, that's what I think it is. Interesting. There's also a lot to practice on the drums. For sure. But I mean, it's it's funny because there's worlds within the simplest things, right? Like I just take, for example, the swing ride cymbal beat. Ding, ding, da, ding, ding, da, ding. There's, for every drummer, there's somebody who does it better or worse. And that's, or subjectively better or to their taste. And it's expressive of that drummer's journey to get to there, where they're at with it. Mm. It's a reflection of, of the life of that individual. If somebody's a jazz drummer, that's what they're playing most of the time. And that's what they're practicing with most of the time. So that one rhythm can say a lot, you know? Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like I've heard someone say they can tell someone's personality by the way they walk down the street. Yeah, I think Miles Davis used to say that. Like he'd pick drummers by the way they walked into the room. Interesting. Yeah. Because you carry your life experience with you wherever you go and whatever you do, it always expresses itself somehow. Um, is there a style of music that you prefer to play the most that maybe taps you into the source the most? I mean, I'm a jazz musician by training and, and culture, so it's where I f find my roots, and that's where I spend the most time practicing and developing, for sure. Well, that's a beautiful tradition. And as a drummer, too, playing jazz or Black American music, whatever you want to call it, it is very improvisational, mm -hmm. right? It's not rote. If you're playing in a rock band or a hip-hop group, they might want you to play a very specific groove. And while there are specific grooves and patterns in jazz music you have liberties to really accent and really play with dynamics and play with colors and play with the sound. And 
that's what I, when I listen to jazz, I kind of tune into the drummer sometimes. I say, how are they? It seems like they just get to have fun and improvise the whole time. Yeah. I mean, ideally we're always having fun and improvising and listening and interacting. It's a lot like life, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, then that practice time is, you know, it's kind of a parallel to my, I guess, my spiritual approach too, which is there's the time I practice explicitly. I'm doing explicit practice. I'm meditating. I'm studying some aspect of the tarot or the Hebrew alphabet, which we were going to circle back to. We never did. Okay. Uh, Drumming the same. It's like, I'm practicing rudimental solos. I'm practicing independence exercises. I'm doing a transcription. And all of that comes together and gives I present the best version of myself I can. But I may never achieve that that pinnacle. It's a, it's a life's work. It's always moving towards something deeper. And then like the vibraphone work. I don't have an inspirations of being a professional vibraphone player, but having that connection, that visceral attachment to pitch and harmony to where I'm in control of it to some level, that deepens my musicianship on a way that's beyond explanation, I think. In your practice and shedding time, do you allow yourself free play? I always make sure I put a little bit of that in there. Um, I'm always, I'm also very goal oriented Mm. with my music, which isn't a, I think some people that's scary to them, but I have concrete things I want to get accomplished every day there. So I I try to stake on course with that stuff, but also give myself a little bit of free time just to see where I'm at in the moment. I'm also playing music with people enough that is highly improvisatory that I get a lot of that in collective group play. Mm -hmm. Well, you also have your own band, which is nice because drummers can be hired musicians a lot, hired guns, Mm -hmm. whatever, for lack of a better term. But you've created a group where you can write music and really explore the sounds that are in your head. Yeah. Um, Can you tell us about your band a little bit? Yeah, so my band's called The Arcanauts. You can check us out at thearcanauts.com or on Bandcamp at The Arcanauts. Uh, Spotify, all of those wonderful streaming platforms we're reliant on nowadays. Um, YouTube. So The Arcanauts music... I don't write all of it. I've, write, I've written everything we've recorded, but when we play live, we'll play music by all the other members of the band as well and uh, standard jazz repertoire as well as hard bop, post bop, bebop, and uh, soul jazz. And surf music. Well, a, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not the classic surf repertoire, but there's a tinge of that, that flavor in. Yeah. I mean, more. it's more the tinge of like uh, the, the psychedelic era, right? That's cool. kind of where we're coming from uh, because we're dealing with, not only my music as a composer, and I've written orchestral music that as well using this. Um, there is a big part of this Western mystery tradition, and Paul Case was a big student of this aspect of it, was the syncretization of pitch and color to the uh, tarot and thereby the Hebrew alphabet, the astrological and alchemical symbols that are used in that tradition on the tree of life. So my music is highly informed by that uh, syncretization of the 12 pitches of Western music to that system, if that makes sense. Yeah, that seems like it would give those pieces a little more depth and connection to the all. It, 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 it certainly, I mean, any music we write is going to have that, right? But it also it also gives me direction. And then 
I think of somebody like William Blake as a big influence because his work was highly informed by his understanding of his Christian mystical experience as he saw it. And it, what it does is it gives me a fixed palette to work with for that particular piece of music. It gives me a fixed philosophical concept to be writing from. And it gives me, it takes the, the me out of it. It takes this, the ego out of it, where it's no longer about my ideas. It's about expressing these higher ideas. And you're just a conduit or a channel for that. Ideally, I'm getting out of the way of it, right? And I think the pieces are best. They come out best when I'm out, the most out of the way. Yeah, I think that's what most musicians do strive for, is stop thinking when they play and just purely feel and express. And then the ones that do achieve that, they'll tell you, oh, I was just channeling something. I wasn't even there. Or I was there, but it was just kind of flowing through me. And it's not limited to music. It's writing, painting, etc. It's funny. We talk about practicing and hours and hours spent writing music. And I think to people who aren't involved in these art forms, they think we're practicing to acquire stuff. I think we're practicing to get out of the way. We're, we're, we're undoing the bad habits that we've, we've learned. We're, we're, we're getting out of the way of the music, letting it come through. Wow. I really like that perspective. Like you're, you're shedding, you're dismantling this ego, this uh, attachment to the physical world, or maybe your intellect and, and you're getting out of the way. I mean, you can look at it even on a very practical level, right? Let's say you're learning something simple like uh, the blue scale, mm -hmm. all 12 keys, right? Well, there's six notes in the blue scale, but there's 12 notes. And if you have a three octave mallet percussion instrument or how many octaves are on the piano, you have to deal with all those notes. So you, you're literally limiting it down to six notes. So you're literally, it's, you're literally in the practice of removing what's not supposed to be there. Mm, I see. It's very literal, right? Rhythm's the same way. You're playing exactly what's supposed to be played, when it's supposed to be played, as opposed to anything, whenever. Mm, I like that. And I find that in artistic practice and pursuit, it's limitations that really help us thrive. It's saying, you know, only play within this dynamic or only use this set of pitches or create a piece of music that's five seconds long, which is what I did for our intro theme song. Uh, and I called you and I said, Hey, I, I got, I got something in my head. I want, I, I want, I want to scat it to you and have you played on the drums. And then you recorded it and sent it back to me. And I threw a bass line down and I had these limitations I wanted to impose on it. it has to be fast. It has to be this tempo it has to be, you know, has to have this energy to it. it has to be this length of time. And then you did a bunch of takes. versions. Yeah. yeah. You did a bunch of versions and sent me back a bunch. And I chose the one that was closest to what I was hearing. So yeah, yeah the concept of, of limiting yourself and creating boundaries and restrictions actually frees you up, which might be counterintuitive upon first thought. Um, there's a there's a freedom in, with in limitations. Totally, I think I think that's some another reason I, I a lot of poets resonate with me is be, that write in verse because they're they're sticking to a form and mm. in that form there's freedom, you know. And there's that that I like the idea of that a lot. Yeah, I like the practicality of it too. Mm -hmm. Because it can be overwhelming if you give yourself all possibilities to work with. And it brings to mind the word yoga, which people say comes from the Sanskrit yoke or something to bind. So yoga, you know, 
in the modern sense, it's it's like holding physical positions of your body for a certain amount of time. That is a restriction, you know? And then within that, things open up. Yes. Um, actually, I would like if you talked about yoga for a minute, because people say, do you do yoga? And it's like, well, I don't like bring a yoga mat to a studio and do like savasana or whatever. Right. You know, that's the modern conception is downward dog and all this yeah, uh, uh, sun salutations. It's like a very- Asanas and then combining asanas into combinations of flow and, and pattern. That's And that's part of yoga, but that's a very small part of yoga. What um, else is yoga? Yoga is ultimately union. And it's the, the uh, and so there is a lot of breath work. There is, a, and there's a lot of meditation. And everything else is about that meditation. It's a form of that meditation and bringing it out into the rest of your life. You're, you know, in, in, when it comes to asana, the physical postures, in the Yoga Sutras, Pantanjali just says, find a posture that is comfortable to meditate in. It doesn't even explicitly say you should sit in lotus position or anything like that. Um, yeah, I think I think what the term yoga is used, and again, just like we were talking about the Bible, and in the West, there's all these layers of tradition and interpretation layered upon the term God. Yoga in the East, and specifically in India, but also uh, in some forms of Buddhism, has all these things layered on top of it cultural things. So I think a lot of people a hundred years ago that were first coming into contact with yoga in the West, they saw a freedom in it because they didn't have that baggage around it, which we've built our own Westernized baggage around it in the past 50 years. That's pretty, pretty silly. A lot of it, in my opinion, it doesn't yeah. really deal with what the goals of yoga are. But it does come from it and it contains the kernel of- It's in there somewhere. Yeah. For sure. Is that enough? Yeah, I don't I know. So. I don't know. And, and I mean, I think I, I think it's great. People are moving their bodies, taking care of their bodies. Yeah, I think it's great that there's some spirituality and mysticism buried in there somewhere. And if people are inquisitive enough, they'll find it. Yeah, yeah. Let's circle back to Hebrew. Let's circle back to Hebrew. I guess what fascinated me about learning tarot because you invited me to be part of a tarot study group, and we ended up studying Kabbalah as well is that those traditions are intrinsically connected or syncretized with the Hebrew alphabet. As far as there are 22 letters in the Hebrew, al Hebrew alphabet, there are 22 cards in the major arcana um, of the tarot. So the Hebrew is Hebrew is a modern, relative, relatively modern language compared to uh, its ancestral languages of uh, Phoenician and what I think they called the Lower Arabian Peninsula uh, Semitic language, and before those was the uh, pre-Sinaitic and uh, pre-Canaanite, and those languages uh, were the first to draw from the alphabet to create. They were their first languages to use an alphabet that drew from hieroglyphs and pictograms and turned them into phonetic sounds. But they also kind of had double function still. And what we study is a version of using the Hebrew alphabet that draws heavily on those traditions, those older languages. Um, so a lot of these ideas of Kabbalah are much older than Hebrew or Judaism, which 
became the bearers of those traditions. Um, but it's an ancient tradition. As early, probably as early as people were writing language, they were dealing with those ideas about what language is, what symbols are. Okay. And so what what is special about Hebrew? What does it contain that other languages don't? So the the, the letters themselves uh, have layers of meaning. And so, like I was saying, it's a phonetic alphabet that evolved out of a pictographic alphabet. And those pictographic representations are still encoded within the shapes of the letters. They correspond to spiritual states of being. The biblical tradition is that Hebrew was the uh, language in which God literally spoke the world into existence. And the, the Hebrew letters are of them, in of themselves uh, the code to the universe, right? Um, the, there is also this tradition of gematria where you're taking the numerical values of those letters and through those uh, discovering hidden meanings within most famously the Bible, but in any text. And then throughout the Middle Ages, uh, there were lots of texts intentionally written with gematria codes. The uh, Rosicrucian uh, Confesso and Fama explicitly. So, hmm. Yeah, and the fact that it's it comes from a pictographic nature. And I know you don't want to get too much into the minutiae, Let's talk about maybe just one example. The one that sticks in my mind is the letter Vav, which- The nail. It's the nail. And it, it is a conjunction. Like lit, you use it literally to, as the word and yeah. maybe, and it, com- it, it conjoins other words and letters together. And it looks like a nail, which is what you physically use to conjoin two things together in the physical reality. Maybe either break that down or give me another example of a-, a I mean, you just did a good job of explaining it, okay. right? So, like, that's that's one example. Another example I can think of off the top of my head would be uh, the Aleph, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is an empty sound. You can give it, based on context, you can have any vowel sound or no sound at all. Um, and it's syncretized with the full tarot keylet numbered zero, uh, which also rep- is attached to superconsciousness. So all of being, and it's a circle. It's the idea of the, the, the entirety of the whole is the zero, right? But it's also, it's of no sound. So it's all sound and no sound at once. Um, it also uh, is the ox. So it's the idea that it's the, it's the, the, the generative force behind it all. Yet it's, it's, there's a paradox there, but through unpacking all those symbols, we can uh, start to get some meaning about, we start to get some understanding about the nature of things maybe. Goes back to the practice that we're talking about. And then you meditate on that, right? So the Hebrew alphabet is very useful that way. Um, You could probably find that in any alphabet, honestly, Mm. if you spent the time to unpack it. The Hebrew alphabet, it's been done. That work has been done and this system has used it as its foundation. The other alphabet that has a tradition that's very similar is Sanskrit, where the idea is the sound of the words, the sound of the words and the shape of the words tells you everything you need to know. And that there's only one way to pronounce. There's no accent in Sanskrit. You can just pronounce words. I haven't, I'm not a scholar of Sanskrit at all, but 
I've spoken to scholars of Sanskrit, and this mm-hmm. is what they tell me. Um, so yeah, going back to Hebrew, though, uh, it is directly tied in with the symbolic language, the alphabet itself. And then when you start to learn biblical Hebrew, you start to see how the words unfold and show you things and tell you things about your own spiritual path. Now, of course, there is, again, a tradition of interpretation that the Talmud is most famously uh, represents, where it's discourse over generations, trying to unpack passages of the Bible. And then the Zohar does the same thing from an alchem- uh, sorry, a Kabbalistic perspective. But uh, I, I, I honestly think that spending the time to learn the language and take these things apart for yourself is m- more valuable. There's so much to learn in this universe. There's so much to learn in this universe. It's it's overwhelming sometimes. I mean, we, we're we worrying enough about going to work and doing a good job and making money and providing for our family and then, you know, recreating on the weekend and also just getting our life together, mowing the lawn or cleaning your house. It's like, how do I have time to study mystery tradition or learn a new language or or ponder on these symbols or meditate? Like, is there any advice you can give to someone who has a bit busy life, who lives a modern lifestyle, but they want to have a more of a healthy spiritual practice in life? What would you tell that person? You, but you did say earlier, read. You know, the more you read, the more. The but that can be overwhelming up. too, right? Like, mm-hmm. I got to read all this old stuff and all this commentary on little stuff. You don't have to do any of that. Yeah, I think I think finding good teachers. And so for me, again, you know, the BOTA has been a huge help because it is digestible weekly work, but that might not be the right tradition for everybody. So finding, but finding some kind of guide, somebody who's going to be able to say, I've done this graduated lessons. Here's this path you can walk. Um, and you can live your life while you do a part of the Rosicrucian tradition is that you're supposed to do the work while living a life in your country of your people. You're not supposed to isolate yourself and and turn yourself into a hermit. You're supposed to be in the culture and of the culture while you do the work. In fact, you can't be clergy or a monk and be a Rosicrucian. The two are non-compatible. Interesting. Well, I like that because life is meant to be lived with other people. You know, there is something to be said about asceticism or being a hermit and going to the woods, but... We live in societies, you know, we live in communities and even though that's social and physical, there's a spiritual aspect that you can't separate the two. Right. So we are spiritual beings. And if you want to enhance your spiritual practice or awareness, I would suggest that actually awareness is, is a big part of that. Awareness is a big part of that. And you can do that anywhere, anytime. Expanding your awareness and expanding your consciousness are two very similar concepts, right? Mm-hmm. And then I think there are emotions. I want, I want to come back to that. There are emotions that help us expand our awareness and consciousness, such as gratitude and love. I think those are very expanding feelings. Uh, for example, I practice mindfulness when I do my dishes. I don't have a dishwashing machine. So I, you know, every dish that I use, I, I scrub by hand. And if I see a sink full of dishes, I can go, man, I don't want to do that crap. But then I'll say, I'll turn this into a spiritual practice and I'll say, I'm grateful for these dishes. Not only do I have these possessions, but I ate food off of them. They helped me cut 
and prepare and present the delicious and nourishing food that I just had this past couple of days. So every dish I wash, I'm thinking this had apples on it, you know, this had a sandwich on it, whatever. And I think about how that food nourished me and it, it just expands my awareness of the connection to the all. And I don't see it as another mindless chore to do. I think that's great. And I think a lot of people though are going to have trouble taking the step from a state of stress and anxiety to that's that state that you're talking about. But for me, it's easy. It's just gratitude. It's just saying, thank you. Like that to me is a switch. It's instantaneous. Well, what if, what if that's the first step is actually just saying thank you? Mm. Like what if, what if the nuance of doing it when you're doing a specific activity might be too much for somebody, but just maybe that's the first thing you do every morning. You wake up and you say, thank you. Yeah. Say, just say what you're grateful for. Absolutely. That's a, I think that's a really, really simple practice that anybody can do any moment of their day. And you don't even have to lie to yourself because however tough your situation may be, I believe there's always something to be grateful for. Always something, for sure. Whether it's the air you're breathing or the opportunity to be a co-creator of this universe. You can be grateful for literally whatever, whatever makes you happy. Yeah. In the moment, in a grand way, you know having your friend over to talk about this stuff. I could be grateful yeah. for that. Like there's, there's no limit, you know? Um, but it could just be because you woke up today. Right. It can be that simple. Take it from there. Mm -hmm. You know, simple ritual is huge and powerful and ritual and habit will create us as co-creators. What we choose, we're, we're human beings are creatures of habit, like every other mammal, you know, the difference is we get to choose our habits. Well, some we don't, choose or we do get to choose them some habits are subconscious right right we fall into them by by repetition or by cultural adaptation but like you're saying we can choose certain rituals and then we can use those to inform and empower ourselves and shape our reality and they can be the simplest little things but they can really change how we see the world right like what give me an example of a small little ritual making your bed in the morning great right? It might seem like a nuisance, but I can almost guarantee if you don't make your bed now and you start making your bed in the morning, every day when you come home and you look at that made bed is going to change your perception of how you live. Mm -hmm. And it's going to change your perception of, oh, maybe like I should clean this other thing. And then, you know, your physical space around you gets more organized. Mm -hmm. Your internal space gets more organized. It's also super easy relatively. You know, if you're comparing the 15 seconds it takes to make your bed and then the 15 minutes that it takes to sit and enter a meditative state, then making the bed is actually much easier. It's no sweat off your back. And again, going back to Pantanjali, he talks about in that book that the first level of yoga, before you try to meditate, before you try to do any asana or pranayama breathing exercises, is you clean your house. Mm. And you're a decent person to people around you. If you can't do that first, then don't even try to do the other things. That's very basic stuff. It's like the whole thing, right? So if you if you're if you're not dealing with the basics, getting up in the morning, cleaning up after yourself, you know, living in a way that's constructive, and extending extending that to the people immediately around you, that's the first piece of spiritual work that we all have to do, and we all have to come back to that every day. Mm -hmm. That never stops. Yeah. We find more and more that spirituality isn't 
necessarily some esoteric thing that's incapable of being grasped. It's it's just the everyday life. Yeah, and all the esoteric stuff is just a reminder of how to do that on a more subtle and more refined way. But it's about being a good person, ultimately. Yeah, yeah. Sending in consciousness, expanding awareness. I mean, I think awareness is huge. Just being aware of how someone else feels when you're around them can connect you to the all because it's connecting you to somebody else, some energy outside yourself. That's right. And then obviously being aware of the energies happening within your personal um, individuation, your body. And that's what a lot of this podcast is about. We're looking at physical health. We're looking at your body and how to optimize its functions and you know its cleaning abilities and things like that. I mean, I can't speak for anybody else, but I, I, I do know that if I don't feel good emotionally, I don't feel good physically. They're all connected. Yeah. And, and so where you manifest physically around you is a product of your emotional and intellectual state. I like it. It's true though. I mean, if you're, if you're, if you're disorganized and stressed, you're more likely to live in a disorganized and stressful space. Mm-hmm. And that's going to further influence you to be disorganized and stressed. I could, I mean, speaking for myself, like you see my place, there's a lot of stuff in here. Um, and when I'm over busy, it gets crazy and stuff's everywhere, piles of books, piles of records. But, um, and that shows me like, oh, I got to like make some, some time to organize and clean this place. And then I feel intellectually and emotionally in a better place to do go back to work. Mm. Yeah. Our mental state is, is our physical state, is our emotional state, is our spiritual state. We, we love to distinguish as humans. We love to break things apart and characterize and distinguish. But to me, they're all related. I mean, not just related. They are the same thing and just different manifestations of the same energies. That's right. Right. And then a lot of that's expressed on the tree of life, right? And as you get into the minutia of the study of this stuff, you start to see how they're interrelated, excuse me, you start to see how they're interrelated and you start to see how we can control and affect those things by balancing them out from each other. Mm. So that's the practical application of the Kabbalah. I love that. Right? Mm-hmm. So it's not just this esoteric thing about, oh, the cosmos and... I'm going to navel gaze while, while contemplating the sun. That's that's great. You get a lot out of that. But it's also, okay, like I am, de- like, this is just an example. I'm dealing with all this anxiety. Well, why do I have all this anxiety? Well, because I have all this uh, emotional strain in my life. Okay, well, what are some ways I can balance that out? Well, a lot of those answers are going to come out of the Kabbalah. And you're going to find those answers within yourself, which is much more powerful than as great as having a therapist is, if you need a therapist, that's fantastic. I encourage you to go get somebody. But finding that still small voice within yourself, that's going to be the best guidance you can possibly find in any scenario. Absolutely. I mean, in other episodes, we talk about the body is the healer. Um, The body has this infinite wisdom, not just on a physical level, but the answers could be there emotionally, spiritually, physically. It's all very good. I mean, I, I'm going to take this conversation and move forth into the world and it'll influence it somehow, maybe not consciously, but um, these things that we study in the spiritual realm always apply to the practicality. Always, always, always. No doubt. 
if it's not if there's no practical application, then it's not real spirituality. I like that. On that note, David, I think we'll stop there. Thanks for having me, Seth. Hey, thanks so much. Thank you for not only having this conversation with me, but for helping compose the theme song. Oh, truly my pleasure. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll leave my email address here if anybody wants to reach out to me. It's david at the Arcanauts. That's T-H-E-A-R-C-A-N-A-U-T-S dot com. David at the Arcanauts dot com. Or just go to the Arcanauts dot com. You can find me that way. And uh, thanks again, Seth. Right on, man. Have a great gig tonight. Oh, thanks.